It is one of the most recognisable songs in the world. The Battle Hymn of the Republic. It's easy to sing and to march to. Its words, whatever they mean, sound stirring and optimistic. It's a song of vivid images, trumpets that never call retreat, watchfires of a hundred circling camps, the trampling of the grapes of wrath, the loosing of the fateful lightning of the terrible swift sword, the burnished rows of steel, lilies in whose beauty Christ was born across the sea. It contains the frisson of redemptive violence too. As he died to make men holy, let us die to make men free. It was sung at Ronald Reagan's funeral and is a staple of military bands and the Mormon Tabernacle Choir. It is resonantly American, an unofficial national anthem. And yet the song is incomprehensible unless we understand the religious foundations of American nationalism. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. The words reveal a distinctive Christian view of the struggle to end slavery as part of a process that would inaugurate a millennium, a thousand years of peace on earth, after which the Lord would come again. It promised a glorious future through the destruction of ungodly. This is the Last Best Hope podcast from Oxford's RAI. I'm Adam Smith. To find out more about the origins and meaning of this most American hymn, I spoke to Harvard University's John Stauffer, the co-author of a biography of the song, and to Richard Carwardine from Oxford, an expert in religion and politics and nationalism in 19th century America. As John Stauffer explained to me, the battle hymn tune was adapted from Say Brothers Will You Meet Us on Canaan's Happy Shore, a southern camp-meeting spiritual first published in an 1807 Virginia hymn book by Methodist circuit rider Stiff Mead. And the tune was exactly what the battle hymn tune was. And importantly, the hallelujah refrain was a part of it. Stith was a Methodist Richard. interested in the conversion of souls and the arrival of the kingdom of God through conversion. Uh, the early Methodists were really not engaged, as were the Calvinist denominations, in political activity, in seeing the nation as a moral being under God. Rather, they were concerned with individual souls. But the Methodist movement that Stith Mead represented was the most successful of the evangelical denominations of the early 19th century. And these radical evangelicals play a very important role in the abolitionist Liberty Party, uh, which, of course, moves into or becomes the early uh, Republican Party, the pre-war Republican Party, which, although it was not an abolitionist movement, was a movement which embraced abolitionists who saw it as the way forward politically to secure their reform and moral agenda. So does all this, John, does all this suggest then that there was something about this tune that would have sounded to the ears of white Americans as if it was an African-American spiritual? 
Yes. A major reason is that Canaan, the very idea of Canaan was for Southern whites a metaphor of the South. And for white Southerners, it suggested a deliverance from sin um, without touching slavery. Uh, and so slaves had a very different understanding of Canaan. Canaan was this happy shore deliverance from bondage. And importantly for enslaved people, the idea of Canaan or of God's realm, that, that Canaan was a heavenly place, but also a place in this world. We also know that uh, slaves sang, say, brothers in camp meetings. They also sang them on plantations. And there were eyewitness accounts of essentially white masters seeing and hearing uh, enslaved people sing, say, brothers in a ring shout, which is a traditional African-American form of dancing while they sing, using call and response. That brings us really to John Brown's body. So listeners may also be familiar with this tune sung to the words of John Brown's body lies a mouldering in the grave. And that's that's a reference, isn't it, John, to the raid on Harper's Ferry led by the abolitionist uh, John Brown, the attempt to kind of liberate an armament store. And his idea was that the, he would arm enslaved people uh, in Virginia who would then take part in an uprising. And this uh, in a, at least in a narrow sense, was was a, a military failure, and John Brown was uh, arrested and hung. One of the people who was involved, nevertheless, in supporting John Brown's raid financially uh, was the husband of Julia Ward Howe. John, do you want to just tell us the story of the song John Brown's Body? How did that come to be attached to this tune? How is this part of our story here? So how that started was uh it was really in 18 april of 1861 um the second battalion um the tigers regiment was stationed at fort warren in the boston harbor and there was a scottish immigrant there whose name was john brown and he and his fellow soldiers formed a choral group in their downtime. Men and women love to sing um, in groups and collectively. And some of his comrades started needling him, saying, you know, you can't be John Brown. John Brown's dead. He's a moldering in the grave. <laughs> He's moldering in the grave. <laughs> And so yeah, it's a very simple tune. It's a very simple tune. And they just started adding lyrics. Five stanzas were soon created. And in May of 1861, the 2nd Battalion became part of the Massachusetts 12th Regiment, which was made up of sons. It's pretty elite. It's pretty elite. These are people with connections with the, yes, with the anti-slavery yes. movement. Yes, and it was sung when they marched down Broadway in New York and a journalist, an enterprising journalist, recorded that and it got broadcast throughout the North. And that's how it really became the anthem of the Union Army. We're talking now about the spring of 1861. I mean, John's very graphic description there of these Massachusetts troops marching down Broadway in New York City, singing John Brown's body. What, what, what did it mean for people to say that his soul, John Brown, this abolitionist who had been 
martyred for the cause of anti-slavery. What did it mean to say, to sing, that his soul was marching on? Well, for for the majority of Americans who had a a belief in the soul, it was highly meaningful. But it was meaningful, it seems to me, when I say Americans, I mean within the Union, there are really two broad groups uh, of believers through the war, uh, anti-slavery nationalists and conservative nationalists. And for anti-slavery nationalists to hear a regiment singing John Brown's body could be inspiring. It was giving the war a, a, a meaning beyond that of simply saving the Union. It was saving the Union that, as Abraham Lincoln defined it, a, a Union that was in, informed by, lived according to the principles of the Declaration of Independence. Julia Ward Howe, she'd met John Brown, hadn't she, John? Yes, she had had dinner with John Brown. Her husband had been one of those who had supported him yes. financially. Yes. in his raid on Harper's Ferry. Yes. Uh, so does it follow then that Julia Ward Howe was a radical abolitionist? Yes, although not as not as public or not as vocal. Um, she was first a poet and a writer. In fact, Nathaniel Hawthorne, who was not usually or not often sympathetic to women, referred to Julia Ward Howe as the poetess of America. She had published two highly acclaimed books of poetry. Uh, she and her husband were both um, abolitionists, but uh, her husband was much more of a um, open vocal abolitionist. He was a close friend at that time of Charles Sumner, who was uh, the Massachusetts senator, leading anti-slavery senator. Yeah, yes, and 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 she, um, but the the story as as she told it, and and part of the story of the song, I think, is is Julia Ward Howe's own creation myth yes of the song <laughs> uh, it, it involves her accompanying her husband traveling down from boston to yes. washington dc right uh, and i think along with the governor of massachusetts governor andrew if yes. i remember rightly yes. and going yep. to visit troops in camp and and and, right. and julia ward story is that after this experience, she went back to her hotel room, which, of course, was Willard's Hotel. I say, of course, because that was the famous yes, yes, hotel yes. in Washington, <laughs> yes. D.C. in the 1970s, yes. where everything everything happened in Willard's yes, Hotel. still is after the most recent election. <laughs> and she went back to Willard's and she had this inspiration and scribbled the words down. Mm-hmm. And it was this moment of incarnation when it the... the, yes. the, the yeah, although well, in her in her telling, um, she and uh, and uh, her um, James Friedman Clark and others. James Friedman Clark was her minister, her Unitarian minister, and the fact she was Unitarian is also, I think, significant. Given that was the, going to be my next question um, for Richard, but you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> in any event, they um, they wanted to see a review of troops and. Uh, rebels uh, attacked, and so there was a skirmish, which led to like a four-hour traffic—the equivalent of a four-hour traffic jam—before their carriage made it back. And Julie Ward Howe also had a beautiful operatic voice, and so while they were waiting, uh, she started singing tunes, and she started singing uh, John Brown's body, and soldiers heard her and essentially said, go girls, sing it again. You have a beautiful voice. So she was doing that. So she was singing 
The song, while she was slowly making her way back to Woolwich Hotel, she reaches Woolwich, and according to her testimony, she goes to sleep. She wakes up in the pre-dawn night, and according to her, uh, the song has already been written for her. And so she just takes a sheet of paper and writes down um, the stanzas. Uh, so in a sense, Julie Ward Howe effectively said, I didn't write the song. God did. Richard, I was going to ask you about um, Unitarians. Julia Ward Howe was a, was a Unitarian. Is, is, is there, can you tell us something about, about that uh, denomination and how it's sort of situated in, in, in American life at this time? Well, very, very briefly, yes. Uh, I mean, Unitarians are uh, liberal Protestants. Uh, it said that they, in summary, they believe in the fatherhood of God and the brotherhood of man. Uh, so uh, the the Almighty is the key figure. Um, Christ is um, a human figure, a an inspired figure, but not a divine figure, according to Unitarian belief. So the fatherhood of God, the brotherhood of man, and uh, some cynics would add to that the, the neighbourhood of Boston. Uh, it's uh, it's very much a local, it's not exclusively a Bostonian movement, a New England movement, but that's where it's that's where it, its roots lie. It's highly intellectual. Uh, if you read Unitarian sermons, they're not actually rich in Scripture. They're certainly not rich in the book of Revelations. What they are rich in is in a moral principle. But what strikes me about Julia Ward Howe is just how how much more in, uh, informed she was in uh, her, her, how, how much she evinces uh, her knowledge of Scripture, her familiarity with Scripture, uh, at both Old Testament and New Testament, and indeed the Book of Revelation. And that's a surprise, it seems to me, from someone who is a Unitarian. In 1839, she seeks conversion in a revival, as it's uh, 18, the late 1830s, early 1840s, in a time of another surge of revivalism across the whole United States. And she seeks conversion at that time, and but 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 fails, uh, and it's a, clearly a, a burden that she she bears. But that suggests that at that time of her life, she was acutely uh, a, a conscious of evangelical what evangelical faith amounted to, um, and hence I think the Christological dimensions of the Battle Hymn of the Republic, uh, which is not a, a a song that could have been written by an absolutely straight down the line Unitarian. So although she's a Unitarian, she's writing like a like an evangelical. Exactly. And exactly. and let, let let's just look let's just pause to look look at the at the words. You know, many people listening I think will probably have many have, will have sung these words, will be familiar with them, but but may not have really thought about what they mean. And what I want to do here with with, with you two is to is to kind of think about what they meant in the in the context in which they were written. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord is the first line. Maybe that that seems like a, a, an obvious reference, but it but it takes us directly to what it means to speak about the the coming of the Lord. I mean, Richard, do you want to um, to talk about that? I mean, to, perhaps this is an opportunity to talk about post millennialism. <laughs> yes, uh, 
Oh, what an appetite you have, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> briefly, briefly. <laughs> briefly. <laughs> I, I, mean, the, the, I suppose the point to make is that Americans of this generation were uh, clear that history was reaching a climax, a sort of end point, uh, a culmination in the battle between uh, the forces of good and the forces of evil, the forces of Satan and the armies of, of the Almighty. Um, the Book of Revolution uh, foretells God's ultimate victory. Uh, it speaks of the return of Christ to establish a new kingdom on earth, a millennium, a thousand year reign. So the, the vision that you have then in the first line of this uh, of this song is, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. Well, uh, the Lord is coming. Uh, he's coming shortly. Uh, and uh, he will come as a result of our having perfected humankind. God, um, and what's tied up in this, of course, is providentialism, the idea that uh, there is a providence, a God, uh, whose action would bring about the punishment of some nations and the rewarding of others according to their merit. Uh, he would uh, he would use favoured nations, and America was the favoured nation, to improve the world and to combat evil. So the, ro the role of the United States was to be a sort of latter-day Israel, a nation that would... Uh, I don't think it's too strong to say it would create the first perfected society in the whole of human history. That, I think, is post... That's post-millennialism. Which is why it's the last best hope of yes. us. Yeah. So, so mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He's trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath are stored. loose the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword john that's directly from revelation <laughs> the point here is that these references these images the grapes of wrath his terrible swift sword were immediately legible she was igniting in people's minds images that were instantly recognizable to them yes and instantly and people instantly recognized the Julie Ward's Howe's language to the book of Revelation. They recognize that connection. To me, at least, when I, when I uh, have sung the song and when I use it in my own teaching, the, the, next, the next chorus is the one that really brings us to the, to the moment of the song's creation. I've seen him in the watchfires of a hundred circling camps. They have builded him an altar in the evening dews and damps. I can read his righteous sentence by the dim and flaring lamps. What she's describing there, I assume, are the Union Army camps that she has just visited. What she's saying, as I, I assume, I have seen him in the watchfires of a hundred circling camps, is that the Union Army then is, in the most literal sense, is doing yes, the Lord's that's work. That's exactly right. And, and that's exactly right. And that's what, according to a lot of scholars, a majority of Northerners believed that uh, they were doing the Lord's work. And, and um, according to scholars of the South and, and the rebellion, Southerners felt they were doing the Lord's work as well. I mean, it really was a holy war. 
I was just going to ask you about this notion of the Union Army as doing the, the Lord's work. I've read a fiery gospel writ in burnished rows of steel. Um, if, if that's the, the function of the Union Army, um, where does that leave the, the rebels? Well, I think it's saying what you, uh, what you imply, which is that they are, uh, putting it the most gently, uh, they are mistaken. Um, but actually they are, uh, they are pursuing a, 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 a diabolical reading of Scripture, not a godly reading of Scripture. They have been misled, uh, misled by their leaders, misled by, uh, above all, by Alexander Stevens in claiming that the new society, the new the new state that they have created, the new polity they have created is one which will be the first in human history to be built on the principle of slavery. Uh, that for uh, Julia Ward Howe and for all of the anti-slavery community in the North uh, was a, a blasphemy uh, to build a society on... Uh, Negro slavery on black slavery uh, was to, to be uh, acting on the side of Lucifer, of Satan. On the one hand, this song speaks to a, a spirit of, uh, of 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 a unity in the North, in the sense that it it has been you know, later uh, regarded as a kind of, as a national anthem. On the other hand, um, it's speaking about enemies as being, as Richard has explained, um, ungodly, blasphemous, needing to be crushed. It's an incredibly violent song as well, isn't it? What does that tell us about the northern public in 1864 and 1865 who came to embrace this song? They were willing to shed an enormous amount of blood because, I mean, before the war came out, a, a cent Northerners, um, a central identity for most Northerners was their identity as a union, that they felt that um, the rebels, and in fact, that I've used the term rebels because during the Civil War, no one in the North referred to it as the Confederacy. Only Southerners did. They called it the Confederate States. But Lincoln, virtually every, um, certainly Republican, said that they were rebels. And what it, what technically is a rebel? Someone who takes up arms against the United States. So for Northerners, it is, uh, you know, these rebels, these people who are committing treason, who are taking up arms against the United States government. It was central to their very identity. And in fact, one of the reasons why more Northerners in the 1850 did not become, and in the 1840s did not become abolitionists, is because they recognized that uh, openly advocating abolitionism might threaten the idea of union. Because there had been, you know, it was the Achilles heel, in a sense, in the United States. And so the idea of being willing to sacrifice yourself for the greater cause of the union um, was significant. Richard, it's a big journey from thinking that slavery was a, a social evil, but not an individual sin, to singing that let the hero born of woman crush the serpent with his heel mm. in reference to the slaveholding yeah. rebels. Yeah, it is. Um, I, I think we'd 
be um, mistaken to assume that uh, uh, everyone who went to war, every man who went to war to fight, uh, saw uh, saw it in those terms. Um, one interesting question for John is just how many of the Union troops did sing uh, the, the Battle Hymn of the Republic, uh, as opposed to John Brown's body. <laughs> uh, uh, I, I, I think it's worth recalling that, as I said earlier, there is a, a strong, strong uh, community constituency of conservative unionists who are willing to sacrifice for the union, not because they hate slavery, but because they love the union and because the union is the last best hope, as you we were saying earlier. Irish soldiers fought. They continued to fight to the end of the war, but they weren't marching to John Brown's body. They were marching to the tunes of republicanism. So I think we have to be careful about extrapolating from the the language of Julia Ward High's magnificent song, <laughs> assuming that this is what was inspiring uh, the, the 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 complete armies of the Union as they uh, as they moved further and further into the South. If I can just move um, swiftly onto the sort of post-war life of the song, how did a, a song that was associated with such a with a such a particular moment and with a particular abolitionist view of the war in 1861 how did it take on this afterlife associated with respectability tradition patriotism so that it became a staple of uh, military bands and the mormon tabernacle choir how what's the what's the story of that transition so it begins after reconstruction that's when battle hymn of the republic begins to replace um john brown's body john brown's body is no one can pretend that john brown's body is a national anthem john brown is one of the most hated to this day, among many white Southerners, he's one of the most hated Americans. And uh, well, he was a man who overtly embraced yes, violence. Overtly right? embraced, so, but he was overtly abolitionist. I mean, he essentially the last ten years of his life, he spent a lot of time around African Americans. He was a close friend of Frederick Douglass, uh, and he was willing to kill people and made this clear um, uh, in the quest to achieve not just liberty, but equality. But Julia Ward Howe's song, which as we've um, we've just been discussing at some length, is, is also, um, it contains a very abolitionist vision of the war, um, although it doesn't mention John Brown, and it doesn't directly uh, mention uh, slavery or enslaved people. Um, but nevertheless, it was an abolitionist anthem too. So how did it become this respectable national song? By having it divorced from its abolitionist roots. The lyrics of Battle Hymn of the Republic, they don't mention the North, they don't mention the South, God is present. You know, it can, it, it's, a, it's a song about someone who um, can receive messages from God, is acting out God's will. Uh, and it's a song that encourages um uh, a, a kind of American uh, or a national uh, a faith based on this, you're acting out uh, God's will. It's also a song that unites and divides. There is a clear us versus them uh, that Americans have uh, very much embraced. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt 
love the song, um, was not a huge fan of the abolitionists. But in fact, by the early 20th century, the histories that were written, white Southerners essentially gained control of the story of the Civil War. And by the early 20th century, abolitionists were demonized. Uh, Teddy Roosevelt, of course, fought in the Spanish-American War, which is the first foreign war fought by the United States after the Civil War, in which there were Southern troops and Northern troops fighting side by side. And so the fact they could embrace this song, the the othering, the enemy is clearly no longer the slave-honing rebels. Uh, they are they are non-Americans, and presumably the same line of thought explains why it was also sung. Uh, and I, I know this from your from your book, John, by 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 FDR um, with his cabinet and Supreme Court members in in 1942 on the radio. Why Goldwater embraced it in the, his 1964 presidential campaign. Yes. Why Ronald Reagan yes. loved the JFK, song as well. Bobby Kennedy. I mean, it's a great song for national leaders at war because it clarifies the enemy versus us we are the righteous the enemy is demons or devils or needs to be wiped out but richard then how does that explain why it's crossed american borders because because it has hasn't it it's been sung by uh welsh male voice choirs it's made its way into church of england hymnals i mean with with the, usually with the line let us die to make men free rewritten as let us live to make men free yes it is an anthem of freedom isn't it but it's also just a jolly good tune i mean it is just <laughs> it is wonderfully inspiring um and it's quite easy it's quite easy to sing it and appropriate those kind of optimistic uh the world is get, world will get better if only we put our shoulders to the wheel um and god will h- help us in that struggle to make a better life I, th- I mean, you mentioned welsh male voice choirs i i think the reason they sing it is uh, partly because it's a wonderful song wonderful tune but partly because wales has is just uh, drenched in uh, biblicism, in, in scriptural uh, recognition. They recognise scripture. So that the scriptural, biblical dimension of the, of the battle here are just second nature to Welsh, uh, in many cases Welsh miners, uh, who feel a sense of kinship with the radical traditions in the United States. They may not be John Brownites, but they certainly will identify with that radical tradition. It's interesting, it seems to me, uh, back to uh, the singing of John Brown's body, uh, very few people sing, sing it these days, uh, but Paul Robeson did. His second country was Wales, at least that's, <laughs> that's how both he and the Welsh presented it in the 1940s and 50s. Uh, he, he would have gone to the Eisteddfod in 1957 if uh, the uh, the Americans hadn't taken away his passport and prevented him leaving the country. Uh, now that, I think, tells you something about uh, the way in which uh, Welsh male voice miners' choirs would see, uh, mine eyes have seen the glory. It would be part of a tale of, um, of uh, working-class liberation, but also of, 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 uh, uh, of racial liberation. And I don't think I'm being too sentimental to say that that's, I think, partly explains why it is that Welsh choirs sing Mine Eyes Have Seen the Glory. So uh, a, a deeply American song rooted in a very particular American moment that comes out of a very um, um, American kind of 
religious story, and yet one that can speak to people far beyond America's shores. Yeah, that's why it's been embraced by both the uh, National Democratic Convention, the, um, the Repu National Republican Convention, funerals of major figures who politically and ideologically are very different. Um, JFK, Bobby Kennedy, Teddy Kennedy, LBJ, Nixon and Reagan. I mean, there's a pretty large ideological and political divide between those and there I could go on. But the song, as you point out, there's this notion of redemption, this notion. It's, it's, a, it's a song that perfectly fits America's civil religion. It's a song, and the civil religion is that, um, that America, American civil religion is the idea that Americans are acting out what they believe to be God's will for their country. Richard Carwardine and John Stauffer, thank you very much indeed. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Richard. The Battle Hymn of the Republic is the most perfect musical expression of the idea that America is peculiarly blessed by God, a most favoured nation, that it is, in fact, the last best hope of Earth. And you've been listening to the Last Best Hope podcast. The producer is Emily Williams... And I'm Adam Smith. Goodbye. <laughs>